Aloha, everyone, and welcome to Connection to the Cosmos with your host, me, Dr. Lisa Thompson, where I have out-of-this-world conversations with extraordinary people. So today, I was supposed to have a guest on, um, James Little, and he has not been able to get on yet, so you may just get me today. We'll see how this goes. I decided I'm going live no matter what, so here we are. Okay. So what I'm going to talk to you a little bit about, um, for those that don't know my background in this whole galactic realm and why I even wanted to start this podcast, why I do UFO tours, all of that, um, I want to give you that background and we'll see if our guest is able to come on or not. So um, my first conscious experience of having an extraterrestrial UFO encounter was when I was 15 years old. Um, I was living in Yelm, Washington. Yelm is a small town outside of Olympia, Washington. And um, at the time, my mother and I, we were in a spiritual school, the Ramtha School of Enlightenment. And so I was already open to these kinds of ideas and experiences um, as that was some of the stuff we were learning at the school. But when I was 15, I remember very clearly being taken into a spacecraft. And when I reflect back on what that is now that I know more about some of the different ships, I would say it was more like a shuttle. So um, it was just me and my guide, my um, alien guide, that we were in this spacecraft. And when we were in there, imagine like if you're floating through space with no walls, like you could see everything, the darkness, you could see the distant stars. And then as we were passing through the different gas layers, um, the amazing colors that I just, you know, it's I can't even describe how beautiful these colors were. And so, we got to where we were going, and um, I was having a conversation with this being. Um, I wasn't scared at all. It was like a very friendly interaction. Like I knew, like I knew who he was. He was presenting as male, and it's like I had been with him before. Very, very comfortable. And so he starts touring me around this facility that looked very much like a clinic or a hospital. And I could see other beings like him. Now they were presenting in a humanoid form. And when I was asking him why they were showing themselves to be human, the answer was that um, they didn't want to scare those earth humans that they were bringing there. Um, they really want, you know, they didn't want any of that fear to come up. And so so they had this sort of cloaking system where they could present themselves as human. Well, so there were other earth humans that were um, in these different rooms. The doors were open and it was like kind of like getting a physical at a doctor's office. And so as I was walking around this facility with my guide, I was asking a lot of questions and the conversation was through telepathy. Um, you know, there were no no words being used, but it was just conversation telepathically. And so I was asking, okay, so where are we? And the answer was that we were um, inside of the moon Io. Io is one of Jupiter's four major moons. And it is also, it's the most highly volcanic of all 
the moons or the planets within our solar system. And so you can't be on the surface of IO, you need to be inside. And what I've come to understand is that it's actually true of most of the planetary bodies within our solar system. So as we, as you know, we're walking around this facility, I'm asking him, you know, so why, why are we here? specifically. And at that time, and I, my teenager mind, so again, I'm 15, my teenage mind didn't really comprehend until now, you know, many, many years later, 35 years later of what, like really what was going on on the earth. And so what he said is that we were chosen to be brought there to see if something happened to the earth, if we could actually live there with them or live in a similar environment. And so they were testing our physiology, our DNA. And so for me, you know, as a curious teenager, that made sense. Um, I didn't fully, again, understand it until later. In fact, just recently, more what that was about. But at the time, um, imagine the year, you know, roughly 1988, 87, 88. we were on the brink of World War III. You know, there was so much threat of nuclear stuff, of terrorism, of just so much stuff going on Earth. And so now reflecting back on that, and I've read many other people's stories um, around that time where they had been taken in craft and kind of similar of like, you know, stuff's happening on Earth. And so we just, we want to make sure that some of you survive. So um, at the end of the tour, again, I was a very curious kid and teenager and adult. And so I really wanted to see what they really looked like. And all I had ever known about before that were the gray um, aliens. And, you know, they were quite popular in um, Hollywood and media and all that. And so um, when he changed form, Then what I saw was he was roughly, I'm going to put him at seven feet. I would say somewhere between six and eight feet because, you know, I'm five, four. So gauging that height was a little challenging, but let's say seven feet tall, pure white skin with really dark, bigger eyes and red hair, like full flaming red hair. And um, there was also a little fleshy underneath the tongue, a little what looked kind of like a rose thorn or something under that. And so when I saw, you know, I, I wasn't scared and I had asked to see what the form looked like, but I could see why in that with the white skin and the red hair and the really big dark eyes that um, if they just presented themselves to earth humans in that form, that there really could be a lot of fear. But these particular beings, you know, they were very loving and kind, and it wasn't anything scary whatsoever. And so um, I came back and I'm in my bed. And, it, you know, at first I was dismissing this, like that was the weirdest dream I've ever had, but I could remember all the details of it. And so, you know, for a few months, I just kept thinking, okay, that was a weird dream, but it it stayed in my mind. And so then 
I was reading um, Whitley Strieber's book, Communion, um, a few months later. And I think at that point I was 16. I was in a different house actually than I was when I was reading his book. And at the end of the book, so his book is all about his experiences with the Greys. And at the end of the book, he's interviewing different people that had had similar experiences to him or had some kind of ad- abduction experience. And now I'm, I'm with Lisa Royal Holt on this. I don't like using the term abduction. It's more temporary detainment because everyone has always returned. But um, so he's interviewing these different people. And there's one man in particular that has a very different story than all the people that he's interviewing. And this man... Um, So Whitley's describing the conversation. The man is saying that um, he had been taken to a moon of Jupiter. He had been told that he was one of the chosen ones, that if something happened to Earth, that um, he would be taken. And so as soon as I read, and then Whitley makes a comment right after that, like a really kind of snarky, sarcastic comment. Well, I hope it isn't Io. And reading that part of it, so reading the guy's story, but then reading that IO piece, I had head to toe chills. And so for me, and now I really know this about my body, is that that is my body saying, okay, that was a real experience. That is truth for me. And so I I had tears coming down my face. And so I ran to my mom's room. And told her because I knew that she wouldn't think I was crazy. But I told her the story. And it just so happens that at that time in um, our school, our spiritual school, we had had a few different people from the CIA and really high up in the government that had actually infiltrated the school because they wanted to spy on it to see what was going on because the information that was being taught was um, very powerful, let's just say. And so I think the government was like, okay, what's going on here in this school? So one of the men that happened to be a student at the school had been very high up government or military, but he knew all the different alien races that our government works with. And, you know, some of you watching this are going to be like, what? Our government deals with alien races? And yes, they do. And there are quite a few different groups. And so... um, So I told my story to him and in my mind, I'm thinking he's going to think I am crazy, but I told my story. I described what they looked like and what the situation was. And his response was that that particular group that I was describing was one that our government actually did not know about, um, that, you know, they didn't know, they didn't have interactions with all the different groups out there, of course, but that, My experience was absolutely real. So for me, it helped to validate that experience as a teenager, knowing, okay, you know, here I'm thinking at first it's just a dream, but it wouldn't go away. And then I'm getting more confirmation and validation that it was real. So what I have since discovered about that particular group is that the reason why they don't, they're not really known by our government, or at least back in the late 80s, they weren't, is that um they don't actually deal with a lot of earth humans um and they're not part of the galactic federation so they're really a neutral kind of group doing their own thing however they do have interactions with the arcturians and so for those of you that have kind of followed my journey and 
seen some of you know my posts, my writings, you'll know that I I am an Arcturian star seed, and I'll explain um, how I kind of found that information out. Because our guest, he's still not here, and we're gonna see. Um, he is calling me right now, but we are live, so I'm not gonna be able to take it. So, um, okay. So this group, basically, it was, um, you know, they just do their own thing. And that that was not my first experience with them. I had had quite a few experiences that were not part of my conscious memory. And that's what happens oftentimes with these different temporary detainment situations is that our ego protects us or they put some kind of cloaking so that we don't necessarily remember because they want us to keep living our lives. And so that's why they felt so familiar though was because I had been with them at that different level. And so um, fast forward to now it's three and a half years ago. So I hadn't really thought too much about different alien races. Um, but I was taking a psychic class, my friend, um, brilliant psychic medium, Lisa Holm in Olympia, Washington. So I was taking a psychic class from her in the first night of the class. She took us on a meditative journey to meet our spirit guide that was going to be like our psychic guide for if we needed to get extra help in tapping into information, calling in information for ourselves or for other people, that this guide would be the one to help us. And so went on this journey and um, came out and I'm in a completely different realm. And in front of me are the most beautiful blue beings, like, just exuding love there were i mean it was just an incredible feeling that i remember being there with them and looking at them and and again telepathically communicating with them and so there was one primary spokesman but there were several behind him and even though i call it a him the energy was probably more androgynous there really isn't isn't sex and they all look the same so you know he came forward and was talking to me and his message was that you are one of us, we are one of you, we are family. And then he gave me this gift of a beautiful quartz crystal um, when I didn't know what the meaning of that was at that time. And so we come back out of the journey and I'm describing to the class who my guide was, they all had like normal human kind of looking spirit guides. And here I'm describing this beautiful, like the blue beans with these high cheekbones and these big dark eyes and blue, just gorgeous skin and slender bodies. And so one of the girls in the class, um, she knew about some of the different alien races and she was like, what you're describing sounds like either the Arcturians or the Avians. And so I had never heard of either one of them. Again, this is like three and a half years ago. And so, you know, had never seen images, nothing. All I knew were the grays and I knew my group from IO. So I um, go home, I Google because I'm like, I got to figure out, you know, who I saw, if I can even figure it out. 
So I Googled Arcturians and um, avians. And as soon as I saw the illustrations of the Arcturians, I'm like, oh my God, that is exactly what I saw. So it was incredible. And, um, and more on that because our guest, James, has just arrived. So I'm going to bring James on screen. James, First can you? Of all, <laughs> I, I apologize. I thought we were meeting at one o'clock and not 10. So that okay. is my fault. <laughs> not a problem. We're here live. So um, I'm going to introduce you to the group and then we'll get into um, great conversation. I appreciate you being here. Thank you. And I was just sharing my story about my, you know, some of my galactic connections and experiences. So I can't wait for everyone to meet you and understand um, your story a little bit. So James Daniel Little has had a lifelong fascination with the unknown and with supposedly unanswerable questions. He studied esoteric philosophy for over 25 years with focuses on scientific illuminism, Gnosis, Tarot, the I Ching, and Freemasonry. One of his primary areas of work is dramatic ritual, emphasizing the direct conscious interaction of the individual with elements of their spiritual nature. He is allergic to the sunlight and yet lives in Hawaii. <laughs> so welcome, James. Exactly true. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yes. So before we get into your different areas, because your your background is quite a bit different from the other guests that I have had on the show and from some of the people that kind of follow the work that I do. And so I think it's going to be a really fascinating conversation to get some new information um, for me, but also for the viewers out here. Mm -hmm. So we, before we go into all that, I first would love for you to just give some background on how you grew up. Like, where, did you grow up in a really religious home, a spiritual home, or something different? Um, I, I would say something different. Um, uh, sort of historically, my family is Irish Catholic, but um, neither of my parents are religious uh, in, a, in any sort of observant way. Um, it was... It was never told to me that we were atheists or there wasn't a God. It was simply not part of the life that we had. So that I didn't really have anything against it or really for it. And it was really just, um, I think that led me to sort of being fascinated with it, just as something that was sort of outside. Uh, it was something that I saw all of these other people doing. It was something that was part of their lives, but it wasn't part of mine. And I just sort of became interested in how that worked if it wasn't necessarily something that I needed but that was such a large part of other people's lives yeah fascinating so then when um so it's about 25 years ago right that you started yeah. Yeah. the tarot and mm -hmm. so what actually what led you into going deeper into like I I need to start finding some answers to these unanswerable questions there's um the, to begin, um, romanticness and silliness. You know, I liked the idea of um, of magic, of mystery, of that sort of thing. And I had, I think, this very sort of fantastical desire for the universe to be this really magic and, and amazing place. Um, and then over time, um, just, I think, 
as life progressed, um, I became more of a skeptical and analytical person. Okay. And it's difficult for me to see something um, that I cannot explain that works in in the reality, in the physical world, that doesn't really have like a, a physical connection that can be quantified or measured in a scientific way. So I found myself at this position where I'd been playing around with all of this stuff for a number of years, got myself into intellectually into a place where I wasn't really going to believe it, but then had to admit that it does work. <laughs> um, and that's still something that I'm struggling with and something that... Um, why generally it's not something that I would often bring up when talking to people, mm -hmm. but just over the past few years, especially with the pandemic, I've really sort of reignited my own studies and just sort of experimentations into it. And uh, it's it's something that I've started to take a bit more seriously because I can't ignore, you know, the, the, the fact that over time, repetition of this sort of thing does create the same result over again, apparently for numerous people. Right. Well, and that is what the scientific experiment's all about, right? Mm -hmm. And, and that's the, I mean, that's the basic idea. It took me a long time to get there from the first time I heard about it. But that is the basic idea of scientific luminism. Uh, the idea that certain practices, whether they're ritual, religious, uh, medit meditation type practices or anything like that, the idea is that they will have the same or similar effect if conducted by different individuals. Yeah. And so... So for you being kind of that skeptical mind, so you are now starting to have more and more evidence and like really integrating it into your full experience of belief from my understanding. Yes, but what I'd sort of, one thing that I'd like to say is I don't really look at it as different from anything else. I still look at it as part of, you know, I don't believe in the supernatural because I think things either exist or they don't. And I don't want to call something supernatural or paranormal just because I can say that I believe it exists, but don't fully understand it yet. I'm much more interested in finding out um, how certain parts of existence work and how they can be most effectively used. Um, and, and so it still is very much an analytical scientific process for me, but it's definitely dealing with things that I would say aren't necessarily physical or mechanical. Okay. Okay. Well, and I think a lot of our viewers are definitely more into that, just like faith, trust, and the mm -hmm. universe. They don't necessarily have the scientific background or interest that I do or that you do. And for me, being a former scientist, like practicing scientist, I had to really um, open my mind to, okay, we don't have all the tools to measure all these things. There can be other realities that they are real. So you're right. They're not supernatural because they are real. They just exist maybe at a different dimension or, you know, a different paradigm, a different parallel reality. I think one of the reasons why I've been so hesitant over the years to sort of apply the scientific method in the way that I really want to, to all of this, is I'm afraid that I'll find out that it's not real and that it's not wrong. And for me, um, simply having faith in something is a great way to be incredibly anxious about it. Um, I don't have to know what something is. I don't have to necessarily know how it works, but 
knowing how I can interact with it, knowing how it can function when it interacts with other things. Again, even if I don't understand what it is or how it works, but what the ultimate effects are, that's to me very useful information because that's information that I can use myself and share with others and potentially you know, it expands people's experience of things. Yeah. Okay. So let's get into what some of the things that you have studied in depth and practice and experience. So I think in our original conversation, you mentioned the work of Alistair Crowley being really mm -hmm. important to your first kind of delving mm -hmm. in to mm -hmm. this. Share more about that. Uh, well, um, probably is pretty much, I don't necessarily know that he's the originator, but he's definitely um, one of the main proponent, proponents of scientific illuminism. Uh, one of the things that's very helpful about Crowley is he wrote an immense amount of stuff. Um, I'm not even going to pretend to have gotten through 10% of it. Um, but one of the things that he did is he did um, keep incredibly detailed journals of, of his experiences um, and basically what would happen when he would do certain types of things, following certain types of practices, would this get the result that he wanted? And he did this for years and years and years and um, was able to put together a system that he called magic, uh, which is a, a system of ritual and meditation that is really, I think, unparalleled in its level of detail and depth and just really the the scope of what it was he was attempting to do it is to most people including myself largely unintelligible um just because it does it requires uh, a lot of experience it requires a lot of knowledge it requires um experience into the subject as much as it would any other, whether it be a scientific subject, historical, something along those lines, he really did create a massive amount of material. And part of what was appealing to me was not just the material itself, but just over the years, having met a number of people who had also engaged in the system and found it to be really beneficial in their lives. Okay. So I'm not, I mean, I know his name, but I'm mm -hmm. not really familiar with that work. Um, so his meditation practices that you would learn, how how is that similar or different to some of the other meditations out there? Well, one of the, um, Crowley's view on, and, and this is actually kind of a sticking point with me in general, uh, the, the definition of the term meditation, uh, because a lot, especially in the English speaking world, uh, meditation is used the same way as relaxation techniques. And that isn't really the type of meditation that I'm talking about. The type of meditation that I'm talking about is uh, basically deciding to think a certain thought, whether it's a particular image, like, you know, so like a black triangle on a white field, to think about that and sit there for as long as you possibly can with that image. And the first thing you'll notice is that <clears throat> it's very difficult to keep that image static. The yeah. colors will change, the shape will change, the sizes will change. His sort of meditation practices um, are designed to sort of train that sort of mental discipline in there. The reason behind that is if one wants to engage in sort of more advanced spiritual practice that's going to be largely led by, if not entirely led by, the thoughts of the practitioner, clear and precise thought is an incredibly important part of that. It's you know sort of like the uh, the joke from Ghostbusters, 
you know, the thing shows up because you couldn't stop thinking about it. And that's the idea. You don't want the wrong thing coming in. If you're dealing with something that's exclusively meditation or um, I don't like to say spiritual, but that's the word I'm going to use. If you're doing something that's exclusively like that, it's going to be subjective. It's going to be internal. So you, at least for your experience of it. So it it does, I think, require a certain amount of discipline in order to be able to, to navigate that within yourself and then potentially beyond that. And that's sort of like a very early sort of beginning stage of that. Um, Crowley himself has a reputation of being sort of evil. In fact, that's probably the thing that most people know about him is that he's evil. Um, he certainly enjoyed making people think he was evil. He was very much into the whole no such thing as bad publicity. Okay. And, uh, but I don't really think that that was, that was his core. And I don't think I'd be attracted to him if I were. But one thing that is very uh, popular among the practitioners, and this is something that I'd mentioned to you previously, uh, are the the dramatic and ritual systems, uh, dramatic ritual, evocatory ritual, what I personally like to call dramatic meditation. And what those, and the ones that I spoke to you were about the Goetia and the Enochian system. So basically yeah. angels and demons. Right. And so tell us first about Goetia then. Okay. Uh, so Goetia, the idea behind Goetia is that it's, there's a book with 72 demons in it. It's a list of demons that, uh, uh, can be described by various attributes. You know, one may have the shape of a dog with the wings of a griffin or something like that. And they all have various traits that they have as well that can uh, be, they can be directed. Uh, sort of like a, a demonic phone book, if you will. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that through a certain set of ritual practices, you call up the demon and ask you to do particular work for it or for you. Uh, this is generally used for uh, material things, winning the lottery, getting a new job, getting a really great deal on a car, something like that. For, sorry. Uh, Crowley um, wrote an, uh, an essay called The Initiated Interpretation of Magic, where he discussed the Goetia. In fact, it was published as a prologue to the Goetia. And what it said, basically, was that what one was actually doing when dealing with the Goetia was dealing with the wild and untamed parts of oneself. Mm -hmm. And the example that he gives is if you call up a demon to smite your enemy, what very well may happen is you may begin to, to feel compassion for them. That may be the way of resolving the particular issue. And so consequently, that interpretation suggested is a strictly internal thing. However, my experience and the experience of a lot of other people is it does seem to affect change outwards as well. So an example that I can give you is I was recently searching for a new job. Um, and so, uh, better way to start it. So a number of years ago, I knew a friend of mine who used the Goetia because he needed money. Okay. And shortly after he did so, first place he went was a gas station with a help wanted sign. Problem solved. Now, it can be more uh, precisely directed than that. Now, for example, when I was looking for a job this past time, I looked for something that would fit my skill set, mm -hmm. would cover the expenses that I have, 
uh, would be would not put me in contact with people that I did not want to be with and would be convenient and not disrupt the other aspects of my life. And uh, the next day I got a phone call from somebody who had seen my resume online and basically offered me a job paying me considerably more what I had before and which is only a seven minute walk from my house. So it's very easy to, to say that, well, that could be just luck, confirmation bias. I'm trying to create this, but I'm also at the same time sort of looking for a new job in, an, in another sense. So it's, and sort of the thing about anecdotal evidence around this is it's, it's almost worthless because it's such a subjective experience because what it is you're asking for in the, and what changes around you isn't necessarily always predictable, but it is very significant, I guess is the best way to put that. Um, and so the results that one can get when working with the Goetia can be pretty varied. And um, definitely the more precise one is, the better. And again, that goes back to having that mental discipline at the beginning in, in order to be able to predict and to, to navigate your way through that. Yeah, well, and um, when we were talking about it originally, what, what came to mind immediately was law of attraction. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it may be in a different form that you're looking at that energy, but that really is what it seems like it is, is yeah. creating this plot. And, and I love the practice that you have learned through Crowley's work, because that's the kind of disciplined focus and meditation I was learning at my spiritual school as well. Of, of the thousands of pages of Crowley that I've read, I think that one exercise is probably the most valuable thing to me over the years. Uh, but just to, to comment, um, I do think that whatever it is that, that causes the experiment that I did to work and the law of attraction, I do think that's the exact same thing. Um, I think it's just being approached in different ways. And so consequently, that tells me that the structure of it is arbitrary. Um, that... If I call up a demon and ask for something and somebody else calls up something entirely different and asks for the same thing and we both get it, clearly what we're talking to doesn't matter. Uh, in fact, something that's been sort of important to me over the past, uh, sort of in the back of my mind for the past few years, but really over the past few months, is sort of taking out the um, ambiguous elements behind to, to get down to the more root stuff. And one of the things that I've done is when working with the Goetia, not using demons, uh, not using that set of book. And in fact, set from the book. And in fact, when I was working, when I was hoping to get the job, um, it was a, a, a popular superhero character who, who was owned by a very litigious company. So I'm not going to mention the name, but uh, who, um, who appeared to me and who I had a brief conversation with and and, you know, I don't know if it was the next morning I was just in a more receptive place for it or if he went out and did something for me. But I can't I can't ignore the fact that from my perspective, it appears to have worked. Yeah. Well, OK, so let's talk a little bit about this, about the demon aspect, because mm -hmm. I know, you know, some of my um, viewers, they are like true angel people. Mm -hmm. They dream with the angels and really connect with that. Um, which are higher dimensional beings. And so the when you're talking about demons, yes. like from your knowing of different dimensions, potentially, are we talking about like, are they fourth dimensional, fifth dimensional? Like, and you did say 
um, how you address the bean is how they're going to show up in your life. You mm -hmm. your original conversation. So, um, you know, I can just kind of go back and say as, as to what they are, I have no idea. Um, I, I, I do. One thing that I'd like to, to, to point out is, is, is I don't like the angel and demon um, counterpoint because it does seem to say good and evil. Um, but really, I think a better spectrum for it would be low to high or material to spiritual or I'd like to use the word ethereal as opposed to spiritual. But um, like I said, you know, the demons, they're good for, you know, physical everyday stuff whereas the angels are more of an esoteric personal evolution sort of thing i can't tell you where they are or if they are anywhere um i'd like to find out but at this point i think i'm pretty far away from getting that information um, i do think that yes how you address them is how they're going to respond and but i think that that really more has to do with yeah, if you're putting in some sort of energetic payment, if you will, you know, the amount of what of you that needs to go into that, I think that whatever one of these sort of dramatic meditation beings you end up with has to do with the character of the energy that you're putting into it, that it's a reflection of what it is you're trying to do. Okay, so kind of like how the superhero showed up for you. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I didn't have him specifically in mind. It was, but that was, that was what came and it, it fits very well with, you know, the, the, the tenor of the moment that I was trying to create. Perfect. Well, and again, um, in the world that I work in, we work with spirit guides and angels and galactics and all of these different entities, but really they're just, you know, we call we think they're external. They really are a part of us and they're um, vibrating at a higher frequency. So they're residing in a different dimension or density than we are but to really fine tune, like what, what true level are they at? I mean, that's, it's a human made construct, kind of like time. <laughs> yeah. You know, even, you know, in science, science and I think scientific Illuminism sort of attempt to go for, an objective view of existence. Um, I think that's kind of difficult though, because we're all sort of locked into our own subjective perspective of the universe. We can only ever see through our eyes. We can approximate objectivity, um, but it really is subjective. So when I'm dealing with things that I can't necessarily class in a specific way, mm -hmm. my inclination is to not class them in that way. Um, to just sort of continue to say, I don't know what this is until I have further information that I can trust, which is kind of what I'm in the process of attempting to do now. Well, and even though you can't, you don't want to classify it, you know that it's there or that it's real for you and other people. Yes. I know that I know without question that it is part of the experience of me being human. Yeah. I can say that. Okay. So, so that's the Galatian, that's the, the demonic phone book and um, mm -hmm. physical experience. So then you also work with the Enochian system. Yes. This, this one is going to be probably a bit more difficult to explain. Um, it's a much, whereas the Galatia is literally just a collection of 72 names and descriptions, um, 
that had that was compiled over several hundred years in Europe, uh, mostly by accident. Um, the Enochian system was created specifically by two people. It is exceedingly complex. Uh, it involves alchemical uh, symbolism, uh, planetary, astrological. Um, the same basic process is there where a person is addressing through a spiritual means a being of, of some kind. Um, so both systems are very language-based. The Goetia is an easy one to discuss because it does deal with the physical and material world and with everyday needs. Uh, Enochian is really more of a long-term spiritual guidance system. Um, it could almost be used as like a, a make your own religion sort of thing, but uh, it's divided up into, well, it has its own language for one thing. The, uh, the two founders of the system were John Dee and Edward Kelly. They were working in the late 1500s. John Dee was uh, incredibly well-known at the time as an academic and a member of Queen Elizabeth's court. Uh, Edward Kelly had far less, uh, far more of an unsavory reputation. Uh, but Dee owned the largest library in Europe at the time and had become frustrated that he had reached the limits of earthly knowledge. So he decided he was going to attempt to contact the angels to gain celestial knowledge. Uh, after working with a couple of people, he ended up settling on Edward Kelly. And the two of them used scrying, which is essentially crystal ball gazing, uh, to for Kelly to receive letter by letter a, a language and a number of pre-written scripts for a person to use if they wish to contact these particular angelic entities. Uh, each of the sessions that Kelly and Dee put, uh, had with these angels resulted in the uh, creation of large tablets, each of which has 156 squares on it. And there were four of those tablets. There's also an additional smaller tablet each square on those tablets uh, is representative of an angel. And each of those squares can be combined with other squares to create more complex angels. So for example, if you're looking to deal with an active part of your nature that you want to be more calm, you'd start with an angel that had a very fiery aspect and you would find a way to get it to a watery aspect. Mm. So you went from fire to water, you're basically throwing water on the fire to cool it. It's a very basic example of how the system works. It is a much more subjective system. So it's, it, it's difficult to explain any particular process in detail. Um, mm. But it, it is, it's, it's incredibly complex. It does deal and, and, and I personally I do where, where I find it mostly useful is to allow myself to look at things like, well, what what do I really think is right and wrong? What do I really think is acceptable? And using sort of that symbolism, that structure to arrange sort of the symbols in my own head, figure out what balances correctly, how to be nice to people, how to take care of myself, when to give, when to rest, when to be active, that sort of thing. That's where Nokian has become really effective for me, even though I think my initial uh, desire was just to go in as a uh, a larger form of the Goetia, get bigger and better things. Uh, but definitely with Enoki and I'm, I'm the the idea of getting things is no longer part of that at all. <laughs> okay, so um, 
so you you were you were able to work with both, but in very different ways because they have different things. They have different goals. Yeah. They have different goals, but the process is still the same. Again, it's it's standing in a circle and speaking to something that may or may not be there. And the more you believe it there, uh, the more effective it's going to be. But um, it, it is much more difficult to explain the the effects of and purpose of the Enochian system without actually getting into and, and trying it. Okay. So I just have a question that just popped into my head because, um, you know, I, there's, there are people who deal with black magic, the dark art, things like that. And that stuff is real. Um, would either of these or both of these systems be considered part of that? And do people use it for like revenge or other things like that? Or in your experience, is it more of a, like, it's all about me and my personal life and not really focused on external people? Um, whether or not people use it um, for themselves, for others, against others, is entirely up to them. I mean, the systems themselves are tools, is what they are. You can use a tool to hurt someone, you can use a tool to harm someone, you can use a tool to help them, you can use it to, to shelter them. Um, whether or not this could be considered white magic or black magic is entirely dependent on the intent of the person doing it. Okay, that makes sense. Because I've actually had a couple friends that have had that kind of darker stuff used against them that then mm -hmm. they've had to remove. But I mean, there's so many. And I do, I do think that it's it, it's possible to do things like that, but. Um, I think is well. I think it would be easier to do with the Goetia because I think that in attempting to do something with the Enochian system in that regard would sort of you know trigger a situation where you'd have to decide whether or not that really was the right thing to do. Yeah, I, that makes sense. So the other thing that um, that you talked about in our original conversation was your participation in your acronym of the OTO, which mm -hmm. is the Order of the Temple? Order of Temple Orientis, Order of the Temple of the East. Um, I'm still a member of it. I'm not particularly active in it these days, uh, but it is, it's um, it's based around uh, Alistair Crowley's work, his, his, um, his uh, the system that he, he wrote. And uh, I'm also, it's also worth noting I'm, I'm a Freemason as well. And the reason that I note that is because people are a bit more familiar with it. And uh, uh, the OTO is not a Masonic organization, um, but it does have an initiatory system similar to Freemasonry, where um, the idea is that we're going to have these, and, and the rituals, you know, obviously I'm not going to talk about the details of them because they're secret, but I can kind of tell you why it is I think that they're important that they're secret. Yes, I would love to that. So each of the rituals can basically be described as the person who's going through it, who does not know what's going to be happening ahead of time, is the star of a play that they know nothing about. They're the main character. They're also the audience, but they're the main character. And they're put through a dramatic situation where you know, certain things happen at certain times. It's like with any sort of dramatic presentation, you want the audience to feel a certain way. So you set things up to be emotional, to be impactful. And these initiations are precisely that, but with specific, I don't want to say moral guidance, but lessons on how to live 
effectively. Um, masonry claims, and I think there's a fair amount of, of support to it, to make good men better. Yeah, it's about charity. It's about taking care of people. It's about community. Um, the OTO does not dispense with any of those things, but it is very much about becoming the person that you are going to be the best person that you can possibly be in regard to yourself, um, not regarding the opinions of others or of society or of anything like that. And I kind of think that's part of the reason Crowley thought there was no such thing as bad publicity. Um, to and not just because you know doing things like that amused him, although I'm certainly sure that they did, but also to show that you can be a good person and still not necessarily be liked by those around you, but you still have to be you. Yeah, actually, that's a beautiful message right there. Um, one of my my passions in life is to help people really be authentically who they are, mm -hmm. um, and you know, even for me, that's, I'm going to be 50 this year and it's taken up until very recently for me to take off all the masks and be like, yeah, I like, you know, I communicate with aliens and I do all this other stuff <laughs> where in my normal mainstream life back in Washington state, um, because I had very mainstream jobs, careers, I didn't feel like I could fully show myself and be authentic. And I have also learned over the years what other people think of me is none of my business. And when I shine my light, I will attract my tribe. And you know, there there's part of the reason that I generally have not discussed stuff like this in the past is my own perception of myself as if I were someone else. And that wasn't very helpful because I would look at it and I would think, well, this stuff shouldn't work. You're wasting your time. Do you actually believe all of this stuff? And it, it, it became a matter of, I have to, I, I either ha I have to respect myself more than anybody else. I have to stop thinking about what other people might think of me and then apply that to myself. Um, I'm sorry, I, I kind of screwed that up, but I, that's how I wanted to say it. But, um, you know, the um, I've put a lot of weight in other people's opinions over the years, mm -hmm. and I've sort of decided to discard those. And I discarded, decided to discard other people's opinions, I would say at least seven to 10 years ago. Uh, I just haven't been very good at it yet. Um, but I'm sort of at a point now where I feel like I can really contribute to the conversation and help people with what it is I've learned. And that's far more important than anybody else's opinion of me. Yes, totally agree with you. So, okay, so you have, since this is connection to the cosmos, most of our people have had at least one UFO or kind of alien encounter. So I would love to hear about your experience with UFO or... Uh, so the the so I did see a UFO a number of years ago in in such a way that it really did stand out to me as 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 departure from the norm. Okay. And I'm guessing this I think this is about early 2002, and I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts at the time. I was walking or I was working in Boston, and I would often walk across the bridge that led between. Um, Boston and Cambridge over by MIT, uh, which is commonly known as the Smoot Bridge. But uh, 
As I was walking across it, I saw a red sphere sitting in the sky, a red glowing sphere that um, changed shape. I mean, it got larger, it got smaller. I mean, obviously it could have been moving further away, but it got wider, you know, it, it elongated, it got smaller. Um, it moved quite a bit. The thing that really stood out to me the most is, and I don't, I've never been able to come up with a phrase better than this, but it turned around and it went behind itself. Um, whereas like if you were looking at a ball, mm -hmm. but you only saw half of the ball, but you, and so you're facing the side where you see the whole thing and it turns so that you only see the half. And when it's perfectly half, it should come out on the other side. You should be able to see the other side of the half, but I simply couldn't. It just turned around and was gone again. And then it appeared on the other side of the sky and continued the elongation of it. Um, one of the things that was very striking to me, now I did not say anything to anybody. I'm sure some people saw me standing there staring in the sky like an idiot, but I didn't say anything to anyone. But it really did seem to strike me that nobody else noticed it. Okay. Because it was pretty obvious it was in the air for, I mean, I probably watched it for about five to six minutes before it finally disappeared. And uh, I also spent a fair amount of time over the next few weeks searching the internet to see if anybody else had reported something similar at that place in time. Um, and I never was able to find anything. And every few years I, st I still check. But um, it, it, it was definitely a very visual representation to me that there are things that not only do I not understand, but that I wouldn't even know how to access within the current body of knowledge that exists. It's like, I can't go to my high school science teacher and ask him what that was. I can't go to Neil deGrasse Tyson and ask him what that was. He'll try to tell me, but, uh, yeah. but, but it's still outside of what it is we specifically as a race know, as the human race knows. And uh, I think that knowledge is acquirable. Uh, I just think we have a lot of work to do to, to actually acquire it. And I think that's true of both the physical and non-physical worlds. Yes. Well, how big was it, would you say? Um, from my, uh, it, it seems to be very far away. Um, it looked, I'd say about the size of a helicopter in the sky. Okay. Um, but again, it, it, based on distance, I, I feel like it would have been larger than that. But from my perspective, it looked about helicopter size. Okay. Well, and, um, you know, I've heard a lot of stories about people where they are the ones having the experience that are seeing it, even though there are people around them. And they're mm -hmm. like, can you see that? And everyone's like, no, I can't. But they're really seeing it. So, so you know, there are experiences that are meant really only for that individual. Yeah. Um, now, and you reported it to MUFON, didn't you? Yes, I did. Although, um, at when I saw it, it, I was not aware that that was something I could do. I was not really familiar with MUFON, even though I've been interested in, in the potential of alien my life. Um, uh, I was not really aware that that was something that could be done. So several years passed. Um, so I don't really know how useful it was. Not a particularly timely reporting. Uh, just uh, I, I wanted to send it to them in the in the event that they could be able to use it someday. Okay. Yeah. So, and for those of you watching that don't know what MUFON is, it's the Mutual UFO Network. And so it was founded, I think, back in the maybe 1950s. Um, in order to yeah, and there are a few other different kinds of organizations very similar to that, but they do field investigations trying to, you know, prove or disprove these different UFO encounters. So, mm -hmm. um, okay, so my final question for you today is, 
how truly have these different spiritual systems impacted your life for the better? Like, why do you keep practicing them? Why, why is this a part of your life? Um, the best answer that I can give is again, just really about becoming myself um, to really, to breaking down the, the sort of the walls, the defenses and masks that I've had around other people um, is part of it, but really much more, it's about breaking down those walls within myself um, to figure out what it is I wanna do, who I wanna be, but more importantly than that, also what it is I'm capable of doing and how it is I can achieve my goals in the most effective manner. And regardless of um, what it is I'm pursuing, whether it's something in the physical world, you know, whether it be a job, education, material wealth, uh, or it's something much more high, divine, you know, something along those lines, I do go back you know, to that one exercise of maintaining a thought for as long as I can, and thereby building up physical, uh, mental discipline in the, same, <clears throat> in the same way that you could build up physical discipline. Um, I'm not going to try to run a marathon, well, first of all, ever, but I certainly wouldn't try to do it without training first. And so consequently to get really into these, these deeper meditation practices that I have found so rewarding, uh, the best thing for me to do has been to continue to build this mental discipline, which has also been very helpful for, to me in the rest of my life. Um, it's a really good skill to have, you know? <laughs> I agree, I agree. Well, so thank you so much for being here. And before we get off, I just wanna talk about my upcoming galactic retreat that I'm going to be having here in Waikoloa Village in Hawaii on the Big Island, October 13th to the 16th. And so I do have a local resident option if you just wanna drive daily to the retreat and not have the upgraded VIP retreat experience, or if you're coming from the mainland or you live on island and you just wanna be fully immersed, I have two different options for you. And the first four people that sign up get the pricing that is listed on the website. And this is a co-ed retreat. I want to make sure people know that um, my Sacred Soul Kona retreat I just got through leading, that is specifically for women. But this whole galactic experience, it's co-ed. So, you know, if you're male and you want to come join us ladies, please feel free. And you can find more information at my website, www.mysticmanta.com. And then you can also sign up on my website to get updates on my new classes, my galactic classes. I have one tonight on diversity in the universe, different alien races. Um, I also have different events that I do regularly. And if you're on the big island and want to come on a big island UFO tour, we do those almost every night. Um, the only stipulation is the sky has to be 50% clear. So thank you so much, James, for being here. And thank you to my audience for watching and whether you watched it live or you're watching the replay i appreciate all of you and until next time i'll see you next week on connection to the cosmos